Hosanna to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Hosanna in the highest. Wonderful music today. Appreciate Sister Tabitha expressing our heart's desire to serve Jesus, be a part of his bride, his church, his kingdom. Let's pray together. And then we're going to dive in together and we're not going to stop. It's going to be different. I'm not going to move down there today. I'm not going to do emotional pleading today. Sometimes preachers need to emotionally plead. I'm not going to tell any jokes today. We're just going to go back in time. And we're going to remember what happened on the first Palm Sunday. But let's ask God's Spirit. Well, if you want God's Spirit to anoint this sermon, say amen. Then let's pray together. Father God, right now, Lord, we just want Jesus to be magnified. God, that's what we want because we know when he's magnified that sinners will be convicted. We know saints will be challenged. And we know when your son is magnified, we will all get in the proper position or you will break us down to where we do. Father God, we just pray today you just move through your word. Move through the story of your son. Lord, today we need the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he shakes us. Sometimes he's like tongues of fire. Sometimes he's like a rushing wind. And sometimes he's like a small, still voice. Lord, today I'm asking that your spirit would speak to us with the small, still voice reaches deep into our psyche and our mind and our being and with that small still voice through your word change every person in this room today all God's people said amen go to Matthew chapter 21 first book of the New Testament Matthew chapter 21 Jesus has been engaged in over three years of public ministry. And what a roller coaster ride it has been. He's had big crowds and he's had crowds leave. He's had disciples take amazing steps of faith and he has seen them tremble in fear. And now Jesus, in what seems to be a great confrontation, between the forces of light and darkness, Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem, the capital, the city, the place where the temple of God is. He is moving there to confront the oppressive forces of sin. Matthew chapter 21 says, When they, Jesus and his close disciples, when they drew nigh or drew close to Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. And uh, when they got there, when they got to this suburb close to Jerusalem, they sent, Jesus then sent two disciples. Now what did he send them to do? Verse 2 says, he said unto them, go into the village over against you. Go over here to this village. And when you get there, straightway you shall find a donkey tied and a colt, a young donkey, with her. Loose them. And bring them unto me. If any man say, or any man ought, any man ask anything of you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. 
And straightway he will send them. He will release them when you tell them that the Lord has need. Now all this was done, the Bible tells us, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophet. Things unfold this way so that the ancient prophecies of God, the great oracles given through the Spirit of God, may find their fulfillment in Jesus. Verse 4, all this was done. that It might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophet. If you're glad that God's time is the right time, say amen. What is the prophecy? Verse 5, tell you the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king comes unto you, meek, sitting upon a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and they did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and they put on them their clothes, their very clothes they laid for a saddle for Jesus. And they lifted him up as you would lift up a conquering hero, a great leader. They lifted him up and sat him thereon. And a very great multitude. There have been many multitudes that have gathered around Jesus. And for one last time, an adoring multitude would gather. A very great multitude, verse 8 says, spread their garments in the way. And others cut down branches from the trees and they strawed them in the way. They laid the branches, we imagine the palm branches, that they laid down for the donkey to walk upon. There was no red carpet to roll out. Only God's creation, the trees themselves, were laid by probably mostly common people who would have had no purple carpet or mighty robes, just their garments. And the gifts that God gives to all people, poor and rich alike, His very creation, they cut them down and laid them at Jesus' feet. Verse 9, the multitudes that went before, that entered before their king, heralding and crying his coming the multitudes that went before and that followed after cried saying hosanna to the son of david blessed is he that comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest and when he was come into jerusalem can you imagine as the great throng enters as the mob that is with jesus enters into the city crying, Hosanna to our King. Can you imagine the way that that procession, that march, rocked that city? Oh, we're a nation full of marches and conflicts and rallies. Can you imagine that day when Jesus entered as they yelled, Hosanna? Can you imagine the turmoil in that ancient city as shopkeepers looked out their windows, as Roman authorities wondered, was this the next rebellion? Uh, as the religious leaders thought to themselves, what on, what on God's green earth are these common people up to yet again? When he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Who is this king that they pronounce as entering into Jerusalem? And the multitude, those that were with him, said, This is Jesus prophet of Nazareth, of Galilee. The multitudes that went before and followed after cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. 
Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Today is Palm Sunday. This is that great day on the calendar of the church where many churches celebrate Jesus as riding into Jerusalem upon a young, don- a young donkey. This day is also known as the Triumphant Entry Sunday. This is because of the entry that Jesus made. Of course, if today is such a triumphant day for followers of Jesus, if today was such a triumphant day for the Messiah, then why by Friday is he hanging upon a cross? How could anyone in their right mind call a day that begins the death of Jesus, or at least expedites his death, how in the world could this be called a triumphant entry? How can a week that includes Jesus' betrayal by his own disciples, how can a week that includes Jesus' arrest by the high priest, how can a week that includes Jesus' condemnation by a coalition, not just one, but by a coalition of religious leaders, how can a week that includes trial by a Roman governor and a sentence to die by crucifixion, how can all this be called a triumph? You might not know today that on Palm Sunday, some 2,000 years ago, Roman historians recorded that another leader entered Judea that same day. On that day, Palm Sunday, the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, also led a procession of Roman cavalry and centurions into the city on that Sunday. Two processions, two kingdoms, two choices. Over on the western side of the city, opposite from where Jesus entered, the Roman historians tell us that Pontius Pilate led his Roman soldiers, each soldier clad in leather armor, each one with helmets gleaming in the sun, with swords of steel sheathed in their scabbards, in their hands the death-dealing spears and the bows with arrows across their backs. If Jesus entered with the cry of the common man, Hosanna, Hosanna to our liberator, our king, it was the drums, the drums of war that beat the cadence as Pilate, the governor of the region, followed Roman protocol. See, it was protocol for the mightiest empire in the world, for the Roman governors over foreign territories. It was demanded that they be in the capital city any time major religious celebrations occurred in the domain that they were over. So here is Pilate over on the other side of the city of Jerusalem, entering on the day of Passover, an odd Jewish festival indeed where much blood was shed where lambs were slain. Here is Pilate in Jerusalem for the Passover, an odd Jewish festival, odd, yes, but also dangerous, a dangerous festival. For this was a festival of the Jews to celebrate their liberation, their liberation from another great empire, the Egyptian empire, mightiest of its day. There was no emperor then, there was a pharaoh who ruled with an iron fist and his slave masters put the Jews to work. You can imagine the tension in the air as Pilate leads his troops in from the western side 
knowing that this is a festival that celebrates a movement of God when tyrants are crushed, when slaves are liberated, when God's people see God do strange and mysterious things. So on this Palm Sunday, the representative of the mightiest empire on earth, Rome, was also in the capital city of a land that had been taken by defeating the Jews and deposing of their ruler some 80 years earlier. As you can imagine, over the eight decades since the Romans had taken over, there were uprisings always in the air. The last major uprising, there had been many smaller ones, but the last major uprising had been 34 years earlier when that one known as Herod the Great died. That uprising, when Herod died, started in Zephorus. Maybe you've never heard of Zephorus, but it's only five miles from Nazareth where Jesus lived as a boy. Before that rebellion, 34 years earlier was over. Zephorus had been laid to waste. Before the Romans marched on Emmaus and laid it to waste. And then after putting down the seeds of the rebellion where it started, the Romans 34 years earlier had then moved to Jerusalem. Uh, As the writers of history would say, they pacified Jerusalem. As the common man knows what pacification means, in the days of the Romans, pacification meant 2,000 Jews accused of being part of the rebellion were crucified on crosses and strewn outside the city as a sign that this is what happens when you rebel against the leaders of this one. So on this occasion, 34 years later, when the Jews were celebrating their liberation from the Egyptian oppressors, Pilate had no choice but to bring a contingent of Rome's finest warriors. He brought them from his preferred headquarters. You see, Jerusalem was stuffy and crowded and seditious and hot and filled with those Weird, strange Jews who only worship one God. Pilate came from Caesarea by the sea and entered that stuffy, seditious city, the capital of the Jews. Of course, Pilate could not just enter a city. He had to make a statement. He had to make sure that these men and women understood beyond all doubt that they may say this was the city of God, but it was Rome who ruled in God's place. Pilate knew that the temple was where the center of Passover activity was. The Romans were, if anything, wise in the ways of the world, and they had actually built a fortress, Antonio's Fortress. You can see the temple here, the outer temple, the inner temple, and you see the four block corners on the side. Oh, the Romans made sure when they took over Israel This may be the temple of God, but the soldiers are watching right next door in case God decides he wants to attempt what he attempted with Pharaoh of old. But Pilate could not just enter the city. He had to march his troops through her streets, march her right up to the very holy place right outside of its gates and move in to Antonio's fortress to prepare to keep control over these Jews. Pilate's entry into that city, his march through the streets, was a message to the people of God. 
It is Rome that rules here. The spectacle of military might. This parade was a reminder of what had happened the last time a wide-scale uprising had taken place. If Pilate's procession showed military and might and strength, if Pilate's procession showed the strength of the kingdoms of this world, then Jesus' procession on this day demonstrated the exact opposite. Both Matthew and Mark record for us and the leading of God's Spirit Jesus' words of instruction to his disciples as he made his entry place also to the temple where his Father God had established worship on this earth. His instructions were quite different than those of the Roman rulers. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus said, Go and find an owner of a lowly donkey, You will see it and you will tell him simply, the Lord needs them. Would you say that after me? Say, the Lord needs them. There's no helmets gleaming in the sun. There are no death-dealing spears. There are no chariots. There is no armor. There is no earthly crown. There is only a donkey and its colt. Jesus, when he gave them the instructions, then also quoted from Zechariah, the ninth chapter. Did you notice that? And he says this to them. Did you notice what Jesus said? Tell, he, he says, all this happened. Why did this happen? We're, we're told that it happened. Jesus didn't say it, but we're told that it happened so that a prophecy would be fulfilled. The prophecy was, tell you the daughter of Zion. Behold, your king comes unto you meek and sitting upon a donkey and a colt, the foal of a donkey. Can you imagine the anticipation, the excitement as Jesus tells them to go do this? As Hebrews uh, schooled in the history of Israel. As Hebrews that we know Peter for sure is one of the zealots who was longing for God to free his people. They would have known Zechariah the ninth chapter very well. And when Jesus tells them to go do something that is the immediate fulfillment of that, would they have also remembered the other verses in Zechariah? Listen to the context for the prophecy. Listen very closely. Zechariah said, I will encamp about. I will move about my house. Why? Why will God have to send forces to gather around his people? Because of the army, Zechariah said. Because of him that passes by and because of him that returns. He says, I'll gather around and when I gather, no oppressor shall pass through them anymore. For now I have seen them. Remember in the Old Testament that God let the Israelites know, I have seen the oppression of the Egyptians. I have seen it with my own eyes and I will deal with it. I will deal with Pharaoh's heart. Well, Zechariah told them, in the day when you are conquered, in the day when you are overcome, God will come to his city and he will surround it because he has seen with his own eyes. Then Zechariah says in chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes unto you, and he is just 
having salvation lowly, riding upon a donkey, upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then it goes on to say, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall break, shall be cut off. And he, that king, shall speak peace unto the heathen. And his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, from river even to the ends of the river. As for you also, by the blood of your covenant, I have sent forth your prisoners. I have taken the prisoners out, he said, by the blood of the covenant, out of the pit wherein there is no water. So turn you. When you see your king coming upon the donkey, the prophecy says in Zechariah, turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. What a phrase. Prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto you. Jesus, we are told he does this to fulfill the prophecy from Zechariah, a prophecy pregnant with meaning and can you imagine as Jesus is giving birth in real time to this prophecy what they must have thought as they went to get the donkey and Jesus here fulfills Zechariah those who saw those who heard with eyes of the heart must have been reminded that God had promised he would deliver his nation from the oppressor And if there was ever a day that the people of God were oppressed, it was this day with Rome. How dare they roam, not only in Jerusalem, the city of God, but their pagan forces with their pagan ways right next to the temple itself. But there was more to the prophecy. The king, it said, would come humbly, not on a steed of war, or a chariot of woe, but on a slow-moving donkey, a symbol of the king who comes in peace. It's hard, and my mind cannot do it, although I've tried all week. I cannot imagine two processions on the same day that could have been any different in the messages that they conveyed. Pilate's entry asserting the power and might of the empire of Rome, which crushed all who opposed it. And Jesus, who rode a young donkey, embodying the peace and tranquility of that ancient Hebrew word, shalom. As he entered on that donkey, he signified the very peace and tranquility, the shalom that the Old Testament says that God would pour out upon this earth as the morning dew when Messiah comes. Two processions, two kings, two choices. On one side of the city, the kingdoms of this world. On the other, the kingdom of God. That is the choice that confronted the people 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday. As they had to deal with the confusion of not one rally, but two as Jesus enters and Pilate does as well. Two choices. And by the end of the week, we know the choice that the people of this world make. By the end of the week, they will be very disappointed. At least many within the Jerusalem mob will be disappointed that Jesus has not accelerated the revolution at the rate they expected. You see, all of us can deal with disappointment. 
The problem is when we're disappointed too much too fast. That's something I've learned as a pastor. Every human being can deal with disappointment. But people who have hopes and dreams and aspirations and too much disappointment happens too fast, that is frequently when the devil does his worst works of discouragement upon us. By the end of the week, Jesus, this Messiah, will have disappointed their expectations at a rate much faster than they could accept. And so even those closest to him will either betray him outright or abandon him in confusion and fear by the end of the week. Did you notice what the crowd proclaimed as Jesus entered? Look at verse 9 again. Look at what they said. The multitudes that went before and that followed cried saying, Hosanna to the son of David. I wonder with others if this is some clue to the disappointment that so many would have in Jesus by the end of the week. You see, they wanted one not like David, but one who would be a carbon copy of David. They had forgotten that David pointed to the Messiah, not the other way around. You see, David was a man committed to God. In the Old Testament prophecies had said that the coming Messiah would sit on his throne, that the Messiah would bring back the glory of Israel. But Israel had forgotten where the true glory of God had always resided. They wanted, like David's day, for the foreign oppressors to be dealt with, the Philistines of their day, the Romans, to be dealt with decisively. And in three years of ministry, Jesus had dealt with oppressors. But he had not shown any direct concern toward the political hierarchy of Rome. Surely now was the time for their David, their Jesus, to stare down their Goliath, Rome. But don't get me wrong. Jesus had challenged rulers, but not the Roman rulers directly. He had challenged a much deeper problem, a much deeper affront. In fact, this is Jesus' ministry to show us where the heart of sin is and to deal with it decisively. And just as the problem with sin is not your neighbor, it is you. The problem with Israel ultimately was not Rome. The problem with the people of God was the cancer that it allowed to grow within itself. And so God did not deal with the foreign Philistine Rome in Jesus. He went right to the heart of the problem and he dealt with all of the apostate Saul's that had infected the people of God. Jesus had said some radical and revolutionary things. Jesus had told a woman at a well that there was a time coming when the worship of God would not just be at the temple. In fact, Jesus had already shown that you could find forgiveness at places other than the temple because he had declared that he could forgive sin himself. In fact, even more of a threat to the religious rulers, Jesus had promised that the temple itself, the structure, would be destroyed with not one stone left upon another. All of us get antsy when our livelihoods are challenged. All of us get worried when our finances are in question. 
All of us get worried when we don't know what tomorrow will hold and the lies that we tell ourselves to make ourselves think we're in control when they are shattered. We don't like that. Can you imagine the scribes, the chief priests, the ruling council, the Sanhedrin? Can you imagine the religious parties, even the Pharisees? Although they are not happy about things, they are still connected to the temple. Can you imagine the Sadducees, all who will lose power and prestige if the temple falls again? Or even if the temple stands and it's not the only place to find forgiveness then they will lose their influence. And if there is one thing we know of Rome, if you cannot influence the common people of the nations they have conquered, if you cannot influence them to do what Rome wants, then Rome will push you aside, maybe even crucify and kill you. So when Jesus miraculously told the lame man, when the first thing he said to him was, your sins are forgiven. Did not have to go to the temple. Your sins are forgiven. And then he healed them. He challenged the authority of the temple system. When Jesus drove money changers from the temple. And he proclaimed that the temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations. But that the religious leaders had made it a den of thieves. Jesus exposed the corruption of the temple tax. He made Awareness put on the scandalous monetary exchange rate. The dishonesty. Why it was allowed to sell animals for sacrifice. There was great dishonesty. And Jesus put a spotlight not on the foreigner. But on where the real problem lay. You see this is the problem with Jesus. And this is the problem still today. Jesus had disappointed. And Jesus had alienated all of the powerful people that we are so concerned with and we so feel the need to impress or to challenge. Like David, Jesus was consumed with the glory of God, but Jesus was different. The apostate Saul's of his day were who he had come to challenge head on. Again, think of them. Think of the totality of what this represented. You see, in our world, you can make the Republicans mad or you can make the Democrats mad. But if you make them both mad, as we've seen from time to time, if you make both political parties mad, it is a fury that will come down. The Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, even most of the Levitical priests, not all, but even most of the Levitical priests, all these who in some way found security in Rome that they claimed to hate, all of them were disappointed by Jesus. C.S. Lewis once wrote and said, sin gets a hold of us and we hate what it does to us. But why will sinners not let go of sin for Jesus? Because as much as they hate their sin, sin is so wicked. It is so perverse. Students, listen to me. If you understand this, you will understand how this sinful world works. You understand why many of your friends that are trapped in sin will not let go. C.S. Lewis said sin is so perverse that although it kills us, we become secure. At least we know what sin is doing. 
at least with sin we can play a game with it and continue to pretend that we are in control. But what Jesus says is Jesus says, without knowing everything, without having safety or security, you must let go of your sin and in faith step out and trust me. And so although all these Jewish groups hated the Romans, at least they knew they would not die. At least they knew as long as there was no rebellion, there might be a hundred Jews crucified outside the city, but at least there won't be 2,000. And so Jesus had exposed corruption, but it was the corruption and worldliness of the Jews. In exposing them, he showed that they were part of the same heathen system as all the nations around them. And this was more than the Jews could take. In doing all of this, Jesus had shown for three and a half years that the people that claimed to speak for God were actually aligned with the kingdom of this world, not God's kingdom. And you know the saddest part of that story? is sin had so darkened their heart that many of them did not realize what kingdom they were really serving. So what a contrast 2,000 years ago. You see, not only did Pilate and Jesus enter the city the same day, but Pilate, like Jesus, also claimed to serve the Son of God. Did you know that? The late Emperor Augustus, He had ruled from 31 B.C. to 14 A.D. And he had brought an end to the great civil wars that had raged after the time of Julius Caesar. With Augustus, the civil wars had ended and and the Roman Republic had finally uh, died its its last, last breath. And the Roman Empire came up in its place. And Augustus had brought peace. And the people had said, peace, peace. And Rome had surrendered her liberties and her freedoms so this ruler could give them peace after all. The years of war. The people were so glad to have peace under Augustus. And he was such an astute tyrant that it wasn't long till Augustus, the Roman emperor, was given the title Son of God, Lord. And even some inscriptions of the emperor that ruled when Jesus was born, there were some inscriptions that even named him Divine Savior. After Augustus' death, the legend started. And this is the work of Antichrist at its utmost. After the death of Augustus, the poets wrote that he ascended into heaven to take his place among the gods. If they called Augustus Lord, Savior, Son of God, The wickedness of man didn't take long until Tiberius, the very next emperor, demanded not that you just call him son of God, but that you worship him as such at pain of death. Tiberius, not enough to be called God. You would either worship him or die. And so when Pilate entered that city, it was the Roman God that he worshipped. A contrast between kingdoms. A contrast between kingdoms. A choice for the people. And although many of the common people thought they sided with Jesus that day, I wonder how many of them did it for the same reasons that the Pharisees and others 
had made peace with Rome. As they cried Hosanna, how many of them expected that Jesus would do for them what Rome had did for her rulers? Jesus would not just turn the tables in the temple, but surely Jesus would turn the political hierarchy upside down and make their lives better and deliver them from the oppressive political system under which they lived and worked. Surely Jesus would not just turn the tables over on the religious. Surely he would turn the tables over on Rome. I don't know how different the crowds were at the beginning and the end of the week. I imagine there were some people in the first crowd who did not turn out for the second. But I also, knowing the fickleness of mobs, have no doubt that there were some who wondered what the fuss was that day who turned out for Jesus, who also turned out later in the week for that fuss. You see, by the end of the week, Jesus had not done any of the things that so many of them thought he was going to do. And like the Israelites of old who had turned on Moses when Pharaoh first responded to the plagues with harder work and making life worse, the Jerusalem mob would come to believe what the leaders told them, what they'd been warning them for some time. Jesus will make it worse for you, not better. You see, we know from John 11 that Caiaphas, great leader of the priest, got all the religious factions who couldn't agree on anything to agree that if Jesus draws the attraction of the Romans, especially during Passover when we are celebrating our freedom from an oppressive empire, then Rome will come down fast and hard on us. And so when Jesus is accused, brought before Pilate by the spiritual family that we as Gentiles have been engrafted into. When the Jews stand there before this pagan ruler, the family that we have been adopted into, that family stood and they cried at the end of the week, not just for Jesus to die, but they cried that he would be crucified. They realize he will never defeat the Romans. He will never dissolve the unfair tax system. He will never put us in charge. He will never do this. And so to appease the crowds that had swelled for Passover, Pilate followed another custom, releasing of prisoners, many of whom were political prisoners. But on this last week in the life of Jesus, a week that begins with what we call the triumphant entry, Pilate offered the choice of Barabbas, a robber and a killer, or Jesus, the failed Messiah. Fearing that if Jesus was released, he would start all over again. The crowd, following the lead of their religious powers, beg, cry, not just allow. They beg and they cry, not just for Jesus to be killed, not just by any means. They cry for Jesus to be crucified. Because in crucifixion, the people of God could show in this form of capital punishment more than any other, they could show by allowing Jesus, demanding that Jesus be crucified, 
they could show that it really, after all, was Rome that they were loyal to. Because crucifixion would mean the humiliation, not just death, but the humiliation of this one to whom hosannas were sung. Two processions, two theologies, two choices. To choose earthly power, earthly expectation, earthly might. Or to recognize the problem is with you. And to allow Jesus to wash away your sin. To trust To trust what Revelation teaches us. That when God decides to come, no earthly king will stand. Two kingdoms. Two choices. To choose the way things are done in a world of pharaohs and a world of emperors. Or to choose the way that God intends them to be. Which King, will you choose? Would you stand with me as we pray? No jokes. No emotional appeals. Two kings. Two kings. Who will you choose? Father God, I ask right now that you would use this message. I have no idea how you want to use it. But God, you just use it. Lord, you use this time for your kingdom. Father God, I ask this in Jesus' holy name that we pray these things in his name. Amen. You do whatever the Spirit of God leads you to do today.